0: Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. Any baseball fans out there, raise your hand if you are a baseball fan. Raise your hand if you would rather watch paint dry. Okay. Okay. Um, baseball fans out there. Now, I know the Pirates are a team, okay? The Pirates are a baseball team. Uh, amen. Did somebody say amen? Um, and the Pirates are the team around these parts, right? And whatnot. But I loved playing baseball. That was my sport as a kid. And I have fond memories of playing a pitching game in my backyard with my neighbor and my brother. And I mean, every, every single day, and my, if my brother were watching this, he'd probably roll his eyes, but every single day, we would go in our backyard We would go in our backyard, we'd throw the baseball, it would be 100 degrees outside, we'd throw it, and we'd throw it as hard as we could at each other, because we were mad at each other, probably. But uh, anyway, I reminisced being Ken Griffey Jr., uh, playing pitch and catch in the smallness of our backyard. And I remember playing little league baseball and being titled the Twin Towers, because we were about this tall in seventh grade. Um, And my brother and I were the biggest kids in the league and, and on the team. Um, Well, we loved baseball. Well, if you're a baseball historian, if you love the history of the game of baseball, you probably or maybe have heard about the 1927 New York Yankees. The 27 New York Yankees were probably, if not the best team ever assembled. The GOAT, as they say, um, as they say nowadays. The kids are saying GOAT nowadays. But anyway, Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth, Tony Lazario, Errol Coombs. Bob Musel, Waite Hoyt, and others were on that team. I mean, this is a stacked baseball team. The team averaged 307 and scored nearly 1,000 runs that year. They were juggernauts. The manager, Miller Huggins, had a very similar pep talk at the beginning of each new baseball season. The beginning of every single baseball season brought about new players, sometimes trades, new players. Common pep talk at the beginning of the year, a new chance, a new season to make an imprint on the team. You've got the same Yankees DNA that you want to highlight from years past, and you want to have that ingrained on all these new players and for a new season. So before every single season, he'd say the same thing. In a low but stern voice, Huggins would say, gentlemen, you're Yankees now you're expected in your conduct, act like it. And then he'd walk out of the room. And that was enough for the new season. And it kind of tips us into what we're talking about today. In Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, there's this grand turn and shift in the letter in the church in Colossae. Paul has expounded upon the supremacy and grandness and majesty of Jesus Christ in their daily lives above having Him all above all else, over supreme, having supreme authority in their lives. Having Christ means trusting in His sufficiency that He died for our sins that he defeated death, that he conquered the grave, and he is seated at the right hand of, of for God the Father. Having the sufficiency of Christ means him, means having him first in our lives and priority in our lives, having him as the greatest treasure and supreme being over all things over all peoples, for all the earth. And he's the highest authority and highest above all things in all peoples. Might God be the object of our center of all of our hearts today and Jesus be the center and the highest authority of all, for all of our lives? In Colossians 1.18, it says this, that he reminds us of this church, that he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the what? supremacy. And at the beginning, when sin entered the world, it separated us from God. And it separated us from sin and death. And Adam and Eve bit the apple. And it separated us from the one true God. And sin entered the world. We were separated from a life of, with God, from God. And from the work and the person of Jesus, He has mended that. And He has become, become what we could not do for us. And become a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus is the supreme and treasure of all that we are as a church, all that we ought to be as a Christ follower. He is the supreme above all else. It changes everything from the inside out in our lives to have Jesus as the supreme object of our lives. From the inside out. So here's a 10,000 foot view as a reminder, a quick overview of the book of Colossians. You open up the Bible and you might look at this book and say, What does this book, what does this kind of look like on the landscape of that culture? To walk into that culture and what does this look like to kind of think about this book and this letter uh, in in a sort of in its own context. So Paul is writing this letter. It's a young church. This was a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. He became a Christian uh, and uh, he was dramatically converted to Christianity, became this missionary force. So he writes this book, Colossians sits on the kind of the western part of Turkey and he writes this letter to combat some false teaching and to place Jesus Christ as the supreme object and the supreme supreme object for their lives for this very young church very very young church in those days and so Paul has a purpose to this and the Colossians of that day those early Christians the pressures of the world the pressures of different philosophies and ideologies were caving in on this church and so you can kind of break it up. There's only four chapters of this book and uh, chapters one and two are kind of like a church kind of a word would be like theological. They would be kind of about God. And then chapters three and four would be about, okay, how does this work out in everyday living? So chapters one and two kind of more about God himself and what God has done in Christ Chapters three and four is practical, okay? How does this work out? How do we live this out as Christ followers today? And so I just, um, this is what it looks like, church, to place Jesus on those manic Mondays, (laughs) Those wacky Wednesdays, like this is how this is worked out. When Jesus is placed above all else, this is what it looks like to work this out. And we will talk about how we are raised to newness of life and so very practical. And we'll talk about how we clothe ourselves with things. And I know for many of us, when we lay our our head down on the pillow this evening, we wonder if this new reality makes any difference in our lives. We wonder if this was any make any difference with the young couple maybe wrestling through some things and struggling to maintain a Christ-centered marriage. Maybe you wonder, like, man, why do I say that to my, to, my, to my spouse? Why do I say that? It's those kinds of things. The person driving to work, blessed beyond their wildest dreams, and yet they put their hands on the wheel and they ask themselves, why am I so discontent and so disconnected? A person watches another show on Netflix and they ask themselves, I've been forgiven of so much, why can't I forgive other people? In essence, this is how we close the gap between those realities, between knowing Christ and then what does this look like on the ground now in our everyday living? We close the gap. And this is what we, that we believe about Jesus and we believe about Christ and the faith that we pr- pr- profess and it gets very practical on the ground here and now, and it works itself out in many, many different ways. And things shift in the letter in chapter 3. eight thirty-four. Page 834 of the Bible in front of you, if you want to follow along in that Bible, and it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Um, we're going to read verses 1 through 4, but uh, uh, we at this church, make sure you find a church that preaches and teaches the Scriptures faithfully. And um, we at Washington Union value it, so make sure you find a church that preaches and teaches the Scriptures 834 on the screen, uh will be on the screen behind me and on the Bible in front of you, verses 1 through 4. It says this, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your what? Hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your what? Minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You see, being in Christ calls for a radical reorientation of a new inner and outer life. In verse 1, Paul emphasizes that we've been raised with Christ, emphasizing God's work in our lives Rather than our own efforts, this is not of our own doing. This is all that Jesus has done for us. This is all God's doing. We praise the one who raised us to newness of life because we were once dead, completely cut off from the life of God. God raised us from the dead and we are raised to newness of life because of Jesus. There's an author named Daniel Akin, he says it like this. Paul is challenging the Colossians to reorient their lives toward the heavenly reality that is already theirs through their authentic union with Christ to seek the things above carried the connotation of our heart's passions, direction of our heart's passions and pursuits toward our eternal dwelling in Christ's presence and glory. This is all about redirecting our heart and our passions and our desires and our affections toward the things that are of eternal value and substance. And as I sort of chewed on this this week, as I, um, not literally, but uh, figuratively chewed on this this week. Uh, I dwelled on this verse, it reminds me of the hymn, maybe you've you've heard of this, reminded me of the, the verse of this hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. And I'm not too sure of the writer of that hymn, but as I was thinking about the book of Colossians, it certainly seems that way considering Those lyrics to that song maybe that hymn writer was thinking or wrote you know thinking of Colossians not didn't write Colossians Paul didn't write that hymn but maybe he was thinking about that and he's thinking about those verses set your heart on things above and set your mind did you notice that set your heart on things above and set your mind I don't know about you but why do our heart and mind wander like why does this happen if we set our minds and hearts on things above, why does it wander off? Why do our heart and mind wander off? And then it made me think of another hymn, and you, you might have heard of this as well, Come Thou Fount. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. And imagine, you know, hymn writers talking about just the reality of the Christian life at times, spiritual life, this wandering and tendency to drift. It's got to be some sort of a real experience, right? They're not going to make something up about this, (laughs) right? They're going to write some real life stuff of what it means to follow Jesus as we sort of walk through this life together. And I see, this is what I kind of see in this. We see this in these verses, sort of a great divide in the Christian life. What we set our minds on determines our seeking and then the direction of our Christian lives. What do you think about when you have nothing else to do? Some common sense qualifications are in order because we all variously daydream about our favorite team or our coming vacation or our yard. And some of you are not daydreaming your yard currently because you're thinking about all the weeds maybe you've got to pick out of your yard. But anyways, we wonder, sometimes we're under such pressures at home or work that we can scarcely think of anything else. But these things aside, do our minds regularly go up to Christ and the things that are above in verse 1? And did you notice that phrase, did you notice that phrase, seated at the right hand of God in verse 1? That's a position of authority in the heavenly realms. And We have a new identity. If you're in Christ, you have a new identity and authority as people in the kingdom of God. This is not our own doing and our own effort. And this is not some kind of authority to meaning to things that we tower over people. But in my estimation, far too often, we as Christians, we sort of lose out and we don't lock in and recognize the victory that we have in Jesus over death. We are victorious in Christ because we are in Christ. And Peter's sermon at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell and empowered the church, says this very early on in Acts chapter 2, that God raised has raised Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. The world does not recognize, the world does not understand the kind of position that we have in Christ. He's seated at the right hand of God. And then we, when we grasp this new identity church, when we understand it, that Christ is our life and he has been exalted and seated at the right hand of God, we have access to that kind of life, victorious life in Jesus. And he's done this great and decisive work in our lives. It's been done for us. And there's nothing more that we have to do than just to trust in him. Hebrews 1, verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But why is this hard? Maybe you're like, why is this gap between my life, my experience, and what I'm experiencing now, what God has done in my experience right now, this gap between sin and this reality that none of us are perfect in this life, none of us will be perfect in this life. You see, back in the Garden of Eden, God had made this beautiful world, created it perfectly, man, woman in His image, gave them freedom, except they gave them one parameter to not eat of the, free of the tree of the tr- fruit of the, <laughs> the not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good. And evil and gave them the freedom to make that choice and gave them parameters to not do that. Genesis 3:6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. It's the promise and pleasure of sin that makes it so enticing, church that it's held out there. We know it's destructive. We know sin is deadly, and it's pleasurable in the moment, and it's attractive, but we know sin's effects and almost always know the immediate gratification of sin trumps the long-term effects because we want what's immediate. And we know sin has very, very long-term effects that are very much destructive, and we want what's immediate. And thus began the great demise. We thought our own way of goodness, we thought our own way of doing things was better than what God and the parameters that God had set forth in the garden of Eden was just a better way. And thus began the sin's demise of our world and in our own spiritual lives, in our own life. Hebrews eleven twenty-five: 25, by faith, Moses, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than the than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Did you notice that, fleeting pleasures of sin? Sin is always fleeting. We know this. When we sin, we know that those pleasures are feeding, and it's more than just a list of rules and regulations. It's about a heart change, having our lives reorient themselves and our affections change toward the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things and above all else. It is about setting our gaze upon Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. St. Augustine was an early church father and much of his writing centered around the affections in our heart and how they ought to center themselves around the work of Jesus and the work of Christ. And he says this, he's quoted by saying this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We rest in Church, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's nothing we can add to it. There's nothing we can add. Only our obedience can't add to it. We rest in the assurance of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, being raised to newness of life. We are secure, church, in the work of Jesus Christ. And we say yes to a greater gain in Christ than the fleeting pleasures of this world. We say yes to him than the fleeting pleasures of this world. I'm going to pick up in verse 5 and read through verse 11. It says this, "...put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of this, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these." Uh, put a spider on the screen, and you're like, man, I don't like spiders. I don't like them either. Raise your hand if you don't like spiders. Okay, I don't either. Um, put to death, and that original language of the Bible is derived from the word necrosis, and it's left untreated. A bite from the brown recluse spider can lead to necrosis, which means certain cells get injured and they die. This is life church... This is life and death, death stuff here. I mean, the language here is very, very, very strong, and this needs killed, church, in order for life to flow from this. Sam Storms is an author, and he says this, when faced with temptation, the immediate gratification of sin will always, almost triumph over the fear of its long-term consequences. You see, back in the garden, we bit the fruit, and, and it bit the fruit. it was pleasing to the eye, immediate gratification, and it's got long-term effects. And death was a result because of this. Um, When I was engaged a little over seven years ago, I made a yes to my wife, Morgan, and that yes was a decisive moment for me in time, that I would choose her despite life's hills and valleys and ups and downs and twists and turns, and that my yes would be a lifetime of faithfulness to my spouse, deciding and yielding to her. I said yes to a relationship and yes to a reality of holding her up and choosing her. I'm saying that I am off the market, so to speak, and my life would be a commitment to one person and one person only. In a similar way, we who are in Christ choose Christ above all else, above everything. He is the supreme power and authority, and when we choose Christ, we are saying no to earthly things. We're saying yes to a greater gain and saying no to a lesser reward and a lesser kind of relationship. We're saying yes to the promise within us and having Jesus Lord over our lives and having him be the supreme authority over all all things. Sam Storms continues, he says it like this, the only way to defeat the power of sin's promise of pleasure is by faith and God's superior promise. Yielding to fleshly urges is overcome by seeking the things above. Fixing our minds on things above leaves little time or mental energy for earthly fantasies. The heart that is entraced by the risen Christ is not easily seduced by the things that are on earth. You see, when we fix our eyes and set our gaze on the supremacy of Christ, we find the power for purity of life. When we set our gaze, we find the power for purity of life. When we come to know and understand the victory that Jesus offers, the things of this world grow strangely dim. And as we walk toward Jesus, as we walk toward Christ, a daily and deliberate walk toward Him, toward Christ, we walk toward Him and not away from Him. And we, we walk toward Him and begin to be changed because of it. And here's the challenge, church, with this. Sometimes we suffer from that person syndrome. We sort of look at these lists of sins here, right? We sort of look at these verses, we kind of read those verses, we say, that other person... We look at that and we say, that's, those are sins for that person that I know, or that other person in my friend group, or that person struggles with that, I will pray for them. We have this list that's something that's needed for that other person in our lives that comes to mind. Church, this is a call to take serious inventory of our own lives and point them to Jesus. And it's not to say that we shouldn't spur one another on and we should, and challenge one another toward holy living. But far too often, it's those who are giving this advice aren't living this out. Um, In verse 5, the word for sexual immorality, in the original language of the Bible, we get the English word pornographic. Paul's call to the culture around it was just as radical as it was today. And personally, I can think of no other array of sins more prominent in our society today and more in need of being put away. We Daily living subjects the average American to the sea of sensuality. It is conceivable that on a given evening of TV watching, one may see more sensual sights than maybe one's grandparents did in their lifetimes. And the magazine ads and the TV commercials uh, Promote this day by day, and we all know this as well. And it's everywhere, church. The longer you and I let that roam in our circles, the more and more it kind of seeps to begin to erode our spiritual lives. And for some of us in this area, we need some supreme boundaries. We need to delete some apps off of our phone. We need to let our spouse in on some secrets. We need to cancel some TV shows that we enjoy we need to set clear boundaries when we're alone. I'm not endorsing legalism, but God's words, a, much better, a much, better, uh, much better writer than I will ever be. And much better speaker than I will ever be. And it says we ought to kill this, church. Cancel Netflix if you have to. Get rid of a smartphone if you got to do it. Too many folks... I've seen it, and you've seen it as well. Too many folks who've allowed this area to be pervasive have lost it all. Their marriage, their career, ministries, all of it, et cetera, and the list goes on and on and on. Going on to greed, William Barclay says this, that the word covetousness that Paul uses here denotes not merely the desire to possess more than one has, but more than one ought to have particularly that which belongs to someone else. And the mention of this is at the end of the list of sexual sins is highly significant for it's associated with them. It's the same kind of form of evil desire, except that it's fixed on material things. And often when sensuality loses its hold, materialism will take the place of that. And it's why, in my opinion, that those who once devoted to sensuality are now given to money. And those sins have the same source. Such greed is the lowest form of idolatry, for nothing could be lower than putting our trust in material things and making that our God. Materialism is the true religion of thousands of confessing religions today, confessing Christians, excuse me. There's a sense in which covetousness is more dangerous than sensuality because it has so many respectable forms. So often is the successful covetous person whom we honor As the proverb goes, if a man is drunk with wine, we kick him out of the church. If he's drunk with money, we make him a deacon. And it's true. Whatever I put my trust in, I worship. You reflect in your life that which you worship. Whatever I put my trust in, I worship. And you reflect in your life that which you worship. And what do you worship? And what holds highest authority and supreme authority over your life? In Matthew 14, Jesus has this moment with his disciples while the disciples are fishing late at night, and Jesus comes toward them, and there's this storm that comes up on the sea. Jesus had been praying that evening, and he begins to have this moment where he walks on water toward his disciples, and Peter's the first one to be zealous about this, and Jesus invites him to come toward him. Matthew 14, 29 and 30 goes like this. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on water, and came toward Jesus. But notice this, church. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And as he took his eyes off Jesus, he began to sink. Did you notice that? He took his eyes off Jesus and looked at the wind around him, he began to sink. Reminds me of this quote I heard from one of my mentors, and I wrote it down, and I never forgot it, and I've probably shared it before. What you think about, you'll be about. What you look at, you'll long for. And what you long for, you'll live for. What you think about, you'll be about. What you look at, you'll long for. And what you'll long for, you'll live for. So how do we do this? What do, what do you, how do we do this? What does this look like, this great gap here? How do we move forward? Because this, maybe it's been a major struggle and maybe it's been a major battle for you internally. Kind of walk through these and we'll, we'll talk about some other stuff and read more. But first, set your heart on things above. The things of God, church, are always greater than the things of man. We set too much on things below. There are idols of sexual nature, but I can also say the idol of greed is right there. We make football an idol. We idolize our careers. We idolize our homes. We idolize our retirement. We idolize cosmetics, consumerism, alcohol, gluttony, status, the past. So many things that we set our hearts on and our affections that are simply not getting our affections on the things that are above which is Christ's, on the effect of setting our mind and heart on the things that are above. Secondly, to put, the death, put to death the sin below. Brian Hedges says that there's only two options when it comes to dealing with sin. Be killing it or it'll be killing you. There's no middle ground. Church, we've honestly sometimes have become soft on some of this, like put to death, kill it. Maybe it's coveting. Maybe it's social media. Maybe we need to get rid of Facebook. I mean, maybe we need to get rid of TikTok. Maybe we need to get rid of our smartphone. Don't text the person who's got the substance that you want. Face into the wind. Face into that wind, church. And as we walk into this, we'll read the rest of this and we'll tie it in together. Colossians 3, verse 12 says this, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly love, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Bear with each other and forgive, Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against somebody. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on what? Love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to what? Peace, and be thankful, and let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another and all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Change is this, church. Change is this. It's an inside-out work of God. This is not of our own doing. This is not us mustering up, this is us looking at the supremacy of Jesus, looking at the supremacy of Christ, trusting in his lordship and trusting him above all else and asking him and the Holy Spirit to do some amazing things from the work from the inside out. This is a daily submission to say, when I wake up, I'm submitting to the lordship of Jesus and I'm submitting under his authority and it's an inside work of the Spirit of God getting a hold of our affections and a daily submission and turn to Jesus over the course of some daily choices that we make and wisdom wise choices that we make you see change is not passive but it is also intentional this is an intentional work as we cooperate with the spirit of god and as we walk in obedience and as we walk in newness of life this is intentional and also as we learned in this church as we learn together change is a relational work of the church it is a relational work of the church and what do i mean by that i mean this Is far too often, far too often, we see many people ditch the community, exit the community when things get hard, because oftentimes when change comes within the community, we just want to kind of exit and kind of want to leave, rather than leaning in and saying, we are here for each other, we're here to sharpen one another, we are here to grow in Christ-likeness with one another in community together. Put on these clothes, this is a new reality And Paul says, is saying, okay, in light of this new reality, this is how you live. In light of Jesus, in light of knowing him, this is how you live. Put on those clothes. The author says it like this, one other fact about this wardrobe, all those garments can be worn only in community with others. Did you notice that? Only these garments can be worn in community with other people. How tempting to think that these garments would be easier to wear if we didn't have to wear them among people. How much easier to think about being compassionate than to do it. How much easier to be kind when we are away from mean people. It would be far easier to put on humility and meekness if we were not being jostled by the proud and the assertive. How much easier patience is in isolation. But that is not the way it works. Christians become better Christians in community and their families among their associates in their dorms and their churches there is, where there is sweat and there's breath. And the truth is that the very things we may think are keeping us from putting on these garments are the things that make them possible in their wearing. Put on is a present imperative. Put them on and keep putting them on. Put on and keep putting them on. And we often resonate with this parable. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that'll be the glory. But to live with the saints we know, well, that's another story. Church, we are meant to be together. And no one's perfect at this. I'm not perfect at this. We're meant to be together. We're meant to do this together, to walk through life together. And I know none of us are perfect, and I know we've all got our quirks. And many of you know those quirks really well. And uh, that's the way Christ designed his church. We work through conflict. We work through the mess. We work through it. And sometimes, church, at the first moment of conflict, we bail. And might I ask us to lean into the book of Colossians. This is meant to be, over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The peace of Christ rule in your hearts as members of one body. You were called to peace and be thankful and let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. And that's an imperative. We are to work this out. And that is an imperative. In Ephesians 2.10, it says we are Christ's workmanship. His masterwork, more literally, could be translated. We are his masterpieces and one day we'll be a perfect masterpiece. We're not perfect now, but one day we will be perfect. Sinless. We are not yet when we meet him in glory. One day. But we bear one another as if those others and the others around us are his masterpieces right now. All of us created in the image of God. Might we be reminded that all of us are created and masterfully created in his image? And might we bear with one another knowing that we are all created in his image In community? John Perkins, he tells how he was beaten in a Mississippi jail. He was being repeatedly kicked and stomped on as he lay in a fetal position for protection. The beating went on and on and on as he riffed in a pool of his own blood while inebriated officers took turns using their feet and blackjacks. At one point, an officer took an unloaded pistol, put it to Perkins' head and pulled the trigger. Then another bigger man beat him until he was unconscious. And as the night wore on, it got worse. During a conscious period, one officer pushed a fork down his throat. It was barbarous torture, a great substantive substantive reason to hate. But this is what happened, as John Perkins tells it. The Spirit of God worked on me as I lay in that bed. An image formed in my mind. It was the image of the cross, Christ on the cross. And it blotted out everything else in my mind. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood and he cared. And because he experienced it all for himself, this Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he preached. Yet he was arrested and falsely accused. Like me, he went through an unjust trial and he faced a lynch mob and got beaten. But even more than that, he was nailed to rough wooden planks and killed 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 like a common criminal at the crucial moment it seemed to jesus that even god himself had deserted him and the suffering was so great he cried out in agony he was dying but when he looked at that mob who had lynched who lynched him he didn't hate them he loved them and forgave them and he prayed to god to forgive them father forgive these people for they don't know what they're doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. And I couldn't get away from that as he writes. It's a profound, mysterious truth. Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. And it may, I may not see victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me. And on that bed full of bruises and stitches, God made it true and me. Will you stand with us? We're going to recite this verse, then we'll have the team sing this song together. This is verse 17 of chapter 3. If you'll repeat this verse with me on the screen behind me. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, through him. Amen. Amen. Uh, Team, will you come up as we sing this song together?